introduce Nettie Cullen. So Nettie is a clinical psychologist, and we had the pleasure of working together a number of years ago. And um, Nettie is amazing at her job as a psychologist, but as a person too, she's um, just someone I've always enjoyed um, spending time with, talking to, and the thing I guess I really love about talking with Nettie is like long periods go by where we don't get to talk much and then we have a conversation and our conversations are always, you know how they, you have conversations sometimes and they have soul, do you know? They're not just about stuff you're doing or whatever. You can have conversation that is involves the soul as well and so it's something that I really always appreciate about Nettie. Nettie's gonna share with us tonight, oh, the other thing I didn't mention is Nettie runs suicide prevention workshops in the community, and as well as works in private practice as a clinical psychologist. So um, the organization that you run um, workshops with is called Living Works. So look out for that. But Nettie's going to share with us tonight a few thoughts on um, suicide prevention from a professional perspective and supporting someone who may be going through difficulties, and um, I'll let her take over from here. Thank you. Wow, that's quite a lovely introduction. Now, like a proper psychologist, I do come with a wad of notes and a few numbers and statistics and things, but I'm also aware that we don't have... Where are the other... <coughs> yeah, that's good. Um, so I was telling a colleague of mine this afternoon what I was doing tonight, and he said, that sounds like your two-day workshop. So I'm going to try and get through a whole lot in half an hour. Um, and I'll, get, I'll touch on a, a few things, but there's a whole lot more that um, we can always talk about. I love the suicide to hopeful, suicidal to hopeful title. In fact, I run a workshop called Suicide to Hope. So, there's some interesting synergies happening there. To start off with, though, what I'd like you to do, just for a moment, is to think, if you were struggling, who would you talk to? Who do you have in your life that you would be able to go to if things weren't going so well for you? And there's a couple of reasons that I'm asking you that and asking you to think about that. One basic reason, it's a good thing to think about, it's a good thing to be aware of, um, because we need people. Everybody needs people. We don't do well on our own. We shrivel up and die on our own, actually. So thinking about who your resources are is really important, and it's quite important to think about it at a time when you're not in desperate need for them as well. Because when we're in desperate need, what happens is that we shrink into ourselves. We withdraw. We're like a little snail. My, my favorite analogy at the moment is snails. We withdraw into our shell and we hide away because we're scared. We go to our safe place. And in an ideal world, our safe place is relationships. But we don't live in an ideal world. And for a lot of us, because of fear and shame, embarrassment, all sorts of things, relationships become scary as well. Yeah. So thinking about who you could turn to is a really important life-preserving activity. The other reason why I want you to think about who you might talk to if you were struggling 
is because it gives us some interesting information about the nature of suicide and the nature of help-seeking help seeking, behaviour. What I would expect <clears throat> is that for some of you, you would think about it and you'd go, oh, hmm. It's not as simple as asking somebody for a cup of sugar. It brings in some very different dynamics. Who am I prepared to share my heart with? Who is going to be safe enough to hold my heart? Am I prepared to go there? And it says something about how frightening this topic of suicide is. <clears throat> Some people here may find it really difficult to think about who they might be able to talk to. And that might be because of their own fear. It might be because of the confidence that they might have in the people who are around them. I hope that listening to jazz, being here tonight, might inspire you to think, oh, maybe there is somebody that I could talk to. Some of you might have found it quite easy to think of who you might talk to. And what we know is that when people do seek help or do look for some support, first of all, they don't tend to ring their local psychologist. They don't tend to turn up at the mental health services and say, I'm struggling with this issue and I need some help, right? What they tend to do is think about the people in their community, their friends, their family, caring people that are part of their daily lives, right? Our communities are our resources, right? They might, people might eventually see a psychologist, but first and foremost, our community is where we can get our sustenance for and we can be sustenance for people in our communities. And so it's important that we're resourced. So, <clears throat> that's why we're here, obviously, right? We're here because we're concerned about the safety of people in our community. We're concerned about the 668 people who took their lives in New Zealand last year. Many of you, like Richard said earlier, will have had an experience, a story about suicide. I would be surprised, actually, if there's anybody in this room who didn't. And those stories impact on us. They influence us in lots of different ways. For many, and probably for a lot of you who are here, <coughs> it motivates us to want to be able to do something. Often in the face of suicide, we feel helpless. We feel ill-equipped, we feel unsure, uncertain about what to do, and we'll look for learning and understanding and information and resources to help us feel more able to do something. But it also triggers a lot of emotional responses. Sometimes it, it triggers responses that make us want to go away, make us want to withdraw, make us want to avoid things that make us feel scared and confused and uncertain and lost. It is no doubt confronting and uncomfortable to go into those places. It's difficult on an intellectual level to think about the kind of struggle that might lead somebody to have thoughts of suicide, to see suicide as a way of, of um, avoiding or escaping the struggle that they have. Even more difficult 
to get alongside somebody and walk that walk with them. It is confronting and it's hard work. It goes against our instincts, actually. The traditional literature around suicide intervention used to talk about warning signs, right? Um, What do you do when you see a warning sign? Usually, you back away, right? So I like to think the language that we use in some of our workshops is we talk about invitations. We talk about the kinds of things that people might be saying or doing, the messages that they might be giving us that we can see as invitations rather than warning signs. It's an opportunity to get involved and get alongside somebody. So, if people don't necessarily turn up at their mental health professional's doorstep and say, I'm struggling with thoughts of suicide, can you help me? The difficulty is actually how do we identify? Now, this is, Edwin Snydman is like a really famous person in suicide intervention, right? (laughs) None of you have heard of him, probably. But he was the first person to say, to talk about, or he started developing theories around suicide, and he said the problem is the bottleneck, and I love that analogy, the bottleneck is not um, services, because we know services aren't perfect, but we know from what Jazz has just said, if you get there and you do the work, it can be really useful, right? The difficulty is getting there. The difficulty is being able to identify when something's not going right and being able to engage and connect, yeah? So engagement, identification is the issue. Now we know, statistically, it's an interesting process to go about trying to find these numbers, but you're just gonna have to trust me on this one because I'm not gonna go into the data to tell you how we arrive at this. But we, we estimate that in any 12 month period, one in 20 people, will have thoughts of suicide. So there's 20 people up here. Statistically, in a 12-month period, one of those people is having thoughts of suicide. In a room of 100 people, statistically, five people, excuse me, five people in the last year will have had thoughts of suicide. It's a human condition. It's not something that happens to us different, um, unique, different species of human. It's something that happens right here and right now and it touches us in a very personal way. And yet it remains one of the most taboo topics in our society. It remains one of the things that we're most scared to talk about. 50% of females, 75% of males will rather not admit to a mental health concern. They don't want others to know about that because of the shame and stigma. Around 50%, again, it's a little bit more for females, a little bit less for males, but around 50% of people will hide it from their friends because of shame. About 30% of people will delay seeking help because they're afraid, because they're ashamed. And it's because of the attitudes that we hold about suicide. We struggle to understand why. We we grapple, we, we, we cast about for explanations. And in an attempt to make ourselves feel better usually, 
we come up with, with some explanations that will usually distance ourselves from the intensity and the confrontation of that human struggle. So we'll say things like, oh, that person's just lazy, they can't be bothered, um, they're lacking in willpower and self-control and self-discipline, um, they're maybe morally deficient somehow, i.e., they're just being selfish, right? And those attitudes are what embed that stigma. It's what distances me from you. It's what separates and disengages me um, from the people who may be able to give me that support and help. The reality is <clears throat> that people kill themselves because they're in unbearable pain. People kill themselves because they don't see another way out of the struggle that they find themselves in. Most people who die by suicide don't really want to die. They want to escape something that feels unbearable. And on that level, <clears throat> suicide works, right? It solves a problem, right? It solves a problem in a very tragic kind of way. Most people <clears throat> would choose to live if they had another option. Now I'm getting lost in my notes. So, <clears throat> the difficulty is that because of this stigma and taboo that I'm talking about, most people don't say openly, like I said, that they're thinking about suicide. And if nothing is... Oh, thank you, Seema. And if nothing is... People, people will have the kinds of struggles that anybody in this room might identify with. Thank you. <clears throat> and, and for individual reasons, suicide becomes an option. It becomes seen as a solution to whatever it is that's, that's going on for that person. And if that is not recognized, if nothing's done um, there's a chance that that person may act on those thoughts, and that's where we end up with, um, with some very tragic results. And the impact of that on our community is massive. It doesn't just affect one person. It, affects, it, it has a ripple effect. It goes out, and it affects circles and circles of people. I'm completely lost. <coughs> so um, the difficulty is not is that this... Um, Stigma operates in a couple of ways. It, it impacts on my ability to seek, reach out for help. It also impacts on um, the, the receptiveness, if you like, of the person who might be in a position to help and assist. So if one in 20 people are having thoughts of suicide in any one year, how do we know? If people aren't going to come and tell us, if people aren't going to openly and explicitly say they're struggling, how are we going to know? How are we going to be in a position to support people who are struggling, right? And if they're not going to tell us, if they're not going to be able to say openly, explicitly, how are we going to pick up these messages? Now, what I am convinced about is that people do tell us. People do tell us in the only ways that they know how. They tell us in 
in the way that they present, they tell us in the things that they might be talking about, if we know how to listen. Observing somebody, if you're struggling, if people are in a bad place, we can often see a shift in their behavior. So observing somebody's actions. If we notice a withdrawal, if we notice moodiness, if we notice carelessness, if we notice shifts or changes in somebody's behavior, it can, it can make us wonder. It can make us think, hmm, something's different, something's not right here. And sometimes it might be drug and alcohol use, it might be other sorts of behaviours. But have you ever got the feeling when you've engaged with somebody that you know reasonably well, or even somebody that you don't know that well, and they're doing something a bit odd and it makes you go, huh, something doesn't feel quite right here? Those feelings are things to pay attention to. Listening to what people are saying, right? When people are expressing, telling stories. People will tell their story one way or another. If you're hearing themes of hopelessness in their story, if you're hearing sadness, if you're hearing worthlessness, if you're hearing helplessness, again, you might go, oh, something about that doesn't feel right. Sensing what they're feeling there are all sorts of ways that people express how they're feeling. And, and we're all really quite, we're all really quite tuned into some of those signals, but sometimes we don't want to know. Sometimes we get a sense and we go, so, are you good? Yeah. Pay attention to those sensations. If you're connecting with somebody and you're engaging with somebody and something doesn't seem quite right, pay attention to that and notice that. The last point I've got there is understand what somebody's been going through. If somebody's telling you a story of loss, of grief, of trauma, of past suicide experience, of hopelessness or helplessness, ask. Find out more about what that means to them. Even if, and sometimes especially if, they're telling you a funny story about something tragic that happened the other day, right? The funny, the humour can be a way, again, of de, uh, diluting the intensity of something that somebody might be experiencing. And so I'll say maybe, gosh, you're laughing, I'm laughing, this is not funny, tell me more. The answers you get will depend on the questions you ask. Right? Be curious, be open, be willing and eager to understand more about what's going on for a person. I could ask a question like, oh, things aren't, I could, I could lead my questions and say, you're not thinking about doing something stupid, are you? That's going to influence the answer that I get, right? No, of course not. That would be stupid. If I'm concerned about somebody, the only way that I'm going to know if suicide is what I'm dealing with is to ask them directly and openly. Right? Ask somebody directly and openly about thoughts of suicide. 
in a way that encourages openness. Um, a big fear that we have in our society and in our community is that if I ask somebody about thoughts of suicide, I'm going to put the idea into their head. Yeah? I don't want to put that idea in somebody's head. I don't want to bring that out in the open. But what we know from the research is that it's very likely that the thought was in their head already. Asking them the question doesn't plant it in their head, them telling you about what's already there brings it out into the open and then it's something that we can work with. If it's buried inside my head and I can't talk about it and I can't get it out, we can't work with it. There's nothing we can do with that, right? So ask openly and directly about suicide, be unambiguous. And the message that you give there is one of destigmatizing. It's saying, we can talk about this. I'm not afraid to talk about this. We can together tackle this topic. Even if inside I'm going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm going to tackle this topic. <laughs> but give that message that this is an okay thing for us to talk about. In fact, it's a really important thing for us to talk about. So, it's stuff like, I've noticed that you've been acting differently lately. I've noticed that, you know, you seem really sad and I'm worried. Sometimes when people get really, really down, they sometimes think about suicide. Have you been thinking about suicide? Now I say that, I say that like, I've said that about 50,000 times in my life, right? So it's, it rolls off my tongue, but it's the kind of thing that you have to practice. You have to kind of get used to trying on that pair of shoes and walking around in them. So my challenge to you, go home and think about it, but practice it. Practice it. Practice it in the mirror. Practice it with your dog. Practice it with somebody that you care about because it's one of, the, one of the most powerful questions that you might be able to ask somebody. And it gives them permission to talk about something that is unspeakable, unbearable, and it lifts the stigma. What I've seen on the faces of people has been in the literature called a guilty relief, a look of guilty relief. When you ask somebody if they're having thoughts of suicide, and they go, oh my goodness, finally I can start talking about what I've been holding so deeply and tightly inside of myself all of this time, right? I've seen people smile with relief as they finally discovered that here's a space where I can talk about what's happening for me. And this is ultimately what people need. I was thinking before I came here, what would be the one thing I'd want people to walk away with? And if there was one thing I'd want you to walk away with, it's about making authentic and genuine connections with people. And in doing that, we provide a space. We provide a space for people to be and tell their story. And in terms of crisis and risk, 
somebody telling their story has the most profound impact on risk. You'll see somebody with an intensely kind of knotted anxiety and stress and being able to talk about it. And I'm sure you can imagine, you can, you've experienced this in other areas, whether it be in the area of suicide or whether it be in the area of some other problem that you've had to, to work through. What does it feel like when you've had a chance to talk it out with somebody? It feels different, right? So what people need is to talk, to talk about what's happened, to talk about the impact that's, that those things have had on them, the meaning it's had for them, why suicide is a solution for them now. What is the struggle that they're going through? Now, I love this quote. Are there human connection points where quietly you can say to people, can you help me understand this? Can you help me understand this? And in understanding you, I provide a space for things to shift, for something fundamental to change. So what does talking do? Working through that ambivalence, working through that confusion and uncertainty and fear, gaining perspective. Like I said before, when we're all shrunk into our survival brains and we can't see the wood for the trees, we're actually inside our little snail shell, we can't see the hope. We can't see anything beyond our current pain and anxiety. But when we provide the space we provide that opportunity for the unraveling and the perspective. The power of somebody listening without pushing to find a solution is profound. Why do we push to find a solution? Because we're uncomfortable sitting in that space with somebody usually. Usually we wanna say, let's talk about something positive, you've got so much to live for, when actually what they need is to be able to be understood. So, how do we support somebody who's struggling? Connect. First and foremost, connect. However painful or difficult or uncomfortable that might be. It's difficult to get alongside somebody who's prickly and anxious and scared and angry and confused and lost. It takes a certain amount of tenacity and grit to persist for nine years, to hang in there and go, no, I am gonna connect and engage here. Listen, and it's not always stuff that you wanna hear. It's sometimes dark and bleak stuff that you need to listen to. Support, don't give up on them, don't lose contact. Be there as a helping hand to help connect them to what they need. Encourage, this is the voice of hope. This is the opportunity that, that sometimes you can see the hope that they can't see. Suspend judgment. What we know is that judgment is a very big downer, right? And it's a very cold, wet blanket um, when it comes to being understood and feeling supported. And respect. Help them identify what's going on for them. It's their journey. At of course, and, it's, and they're the experts on their situation, right? And that's where that respect comes in. 
accept them for who they are, where they are, what they're going through, and show them that you care. When they have had that opportunity to get their perspective, then you'll feel the shift. And the solution is always an individual one, right? There's never one size fits all. What works for me is not going to work for you necessarily, right? That doesn't mean that it will never work for anybody else, but, but part of getting alongside people, listening to their story and understanding where they're coming from is helping them along their journey. So the solutions are going to be unique to them. The question of what services work, what is out there for people? Now, there's a whole heap of stuff out there for people, and I've got some very, very small writing on a couple of slides coming up with a whole lot of services that you won't be able to read from where you're sitting. I don't know what I was thinking, and you'll laugh when you see them. But um, I will say that there are different levels of support that people need, right? There are crisis supports, there are recovery supports, and there are growth supports. Crisis supports are about safety first. We need to establish safety before we can do much else, right? If somebody's there teetering on the edge of a cliff, we're not going to start talking to them about their budgeting services and um, whether that might help them, right? <laughs> that might be something that is a really important part of their story, but in that moment, on the edge of that cliff, Metaphorically or physically, safety comes first. So crisis services and crisis intervention is about supporting that immediate need for safety. And if somebody's not able to keep themselves safe, if you're not able to keep yourself safe, that's when you need a particular kind of support that's going to help keep you safe in that moment. You need the hand reaching into your back and pulling you back. But once you are, once that safety is established, once my feet are back on the ground, then I can look around and go, well, what are the things that are contributing to me feeling like my life isn't worth living? And if it is my finances, then budgeting support could be really helpful, right? What do I need to do to address things in my life that are the that are reasons or the things that feel unbearable for me. And this is what I'm thinking about when I talk about recovery. So what are the issues that somebody's facing? And this is where our resources are, are broad ranging. And they relate to all sorts of things that people might be struggling with, from sexuality, to drugs and alcohol, to parenting, to sleep deprivation, to illness, to gambling all sorts of stuff, it could be absolutely anything, and that's part of that individual story. Now, the thing that I love about this work is that it doesn't have to stop there. We don't have to stop and settle for getting back to where I was before the crisis. And what I love about this work is that crisis is an opportunity. Crisis presents us with a chance to become more than we were before the crisis. And I think that we heard that story so beautifully in Jazz's story here, is that I've heard people say, I know I wouldn't want to go through this again, but I'm glad that I did, because I'm a better 
more whole person than I would have been without this experience. And that's where some of our growth work can happen. That's where some of our, and this is, this is not necessarily short-term work, this might be deep work about what is the structure of my whole being? How do I want to be different in the world in a way that's going to be fundamentally life-changing? Right? Can I become a completely different person? And I believe that we can. And sometimes it is through that crisis that we can. And here's a lovely quote from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Here's a, um, a couple of support groups for people bereaved by suicide. If you want more of this information, just come and see me after, because here is the little writing. <laughs> and I will say at the very top there is 1737. Uh, and there's two pages of these, right? <laughs> so I already disclaimed that. There you go. Faith, though, um, faith is a big part of why I do what I do. Um, it inspires, it supports, it's a foundation for for my life, but for my connection with people that I work with. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. Hebrews 11, 11, the message translation. And that's, I, I think it's beautifully illustrated in that letter to my suicidal self. The things that we can't see, it's faith is a resource Hope is a resource. If we can find a way to connect with that hope of the stuff that we don't know, the stuff that we can't see in the here and now, it can be that lifeline. The last thing I'm going to say is that supporting other people in their journey is in some ways quite simple. You know, forming that connection and listening, but that is in other ways incredibly complex and hard. And so what is really important, and I, just, I put this hand here at the end, is that we must take care of ourselves. And I think, I ask people to go away and think of five, one for each of your fingers, resources and supports for you to be able to hold on to that nurture and nourish yourself. Because we can only support people around us if we're taking care of ourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs>